This message comes from the Orthopedic Trauma Association. Just because you're not getting on an airplane doesn't mean you can't attend the OTA annual meeting. This year's online meeting includes symposia, paper and poster presentations, industry sessions, social events, and of course, CME. If watching the meeting live doesn't work with your schedule, all educational sessions will be recorded and made available to all attendees. The meeting starts October 21st. Register today for the 2020 OTA Annual Meeting at OTA.org. The next really highest level beyond that is after the case, they really pulled me aside and say, hey, here was my pre-op plan. Here's what we did. Can we just go over why it was really accurate or why we had to change course? So I think the superstars who stand out in my mind are, are those residents. Welcome to the OTA Podcast, your home for conversations with leading experts in orthopedic trauma. Please note that the views expressed on this podcast do not necessarily represent the views of the Orthopedic Trauma Association or its members. This message is from OTA sponsor Stryker. Introducing Stryker's new Variax 2 mini fragment plating system. For over two decades, Stryker has been innovating in the plating space, launching a comprehensive range of standard and anatomically contoured plating options for small and large fragment indications. Designed with you in mind, our latest edition, the Variax 2 Mini Fragment System, has broadened our plating portfolio while also complementing Stryker's full trauma product offering. Learn more at platingthatfits.com. Hello and welcome to the OTA Podcast. My name is Michael Blankstein and I will be your host for this episode of the OTA Podcast channel. I'm an orthopedic trauma and orthoplasty surgeon at the University of Vermont. Today we will be continuing our discussion in our new OTA podcast called the Residence Symposium. Today's guest is Dr. Hassan Mir. Dr. Mir is the director of the orthopedic residency program at the University of South Florida and the director of the orthopedic trauma research at the Florida Orthopedic Institute. He has interest in clinical health policy research as well as medical education. He has participated as faculty at dozens of courses and training programs from across the globe. His dedication to education was rewarded with the Resident Teaching Award at both Vanderbilt and at USF. Welcome to the show, Dr. Mir. We're very excited about having you here. Thank you for having me. It's my pleasure. So let's say, just get started with telling us how long you've been a program director, why did you choose to become one? So I'm coming up on five years of being a program director here now, and I think my reason for wanting to become one was just to become more involved in uh, resident education at really all levels. In my previous role, I was involved in resident education at our own program peripherally, with a little bit of involvement in the interview process and some occasional mentoring of residents who sought me out. And then, you know, when the opportunity arose to become a program director, it just gave me the chance to get much more involved on a broader scale to help really shape a program, shape a curriculum, and to uh, mentor more residents. And, you know, I I love teaching and I love mentoring residents and watching them kind of grow and flourish. That's fantastic. What's your favorite thing about it? 
And so I think it's what I just said. It's great seeing residents come in as, you know, even as rotating students and then watch them kind of gain more confidence as they go through their junior years and into their senior years, both clinically with their surgical skills and with their presentation skills on call and in clinic management. And then also just from a confidence standpoint, when they discuss cases and and you just see that that as their knowledge base grows and as they've done more and more surgery, they're just really growing into competent positions. And, and it's even a, a greater reward when I see them go on to do well in fellowship and then talk to them at meetings and get texts and calls, you know, all the time from my former trainees. It's really a rewarding, rewarding thing. Yeah, I completely agree. There's nothing more rewarding and it never gets boring. What's your least favorite thing about it? Oh, definitely all the uh, the paperwork. <laughs> There's just yeah. a nonstop mountain of various forms and various meetings that we have to set throughout the year and, and all the paperwork associated. So all the uh, administrative burden is probably the least favorite aspect, and that would probably be universal no matter what program director you asked. Mm-hmm. You're obviously involved with selecting residents for your program. Is there a specific type of student that you're looking for when you're going through those, uh, you know, hundreds and hundreds of applications? No, and I think that it, it varies. I advise a lot of medical students both here from our university and then also in normal years when we have rotating students from other universities. And they always ask the same things and just tell them that you want to try to be a well-rounded person and a well-rounded applicant and That means that, sure, you want to get good grades and you want to do well on your exams, but you want to do other things that are interesting and just try to convey that as much as you can on paper. That way, at the interview process, it'll really come out who you are as a person. And if you are going to be a good fit for what people think is the culture at their program and vice versa. I I advise students just as much to look at programs and remind them that it's a two-way match. You want to see if that's a place that you really see yourself succeeding and wanting to grow. The other thing that, that I've tried to champion a little more in my role now is I've had prior involvement at the academy level on the diversity advisory board and at our university, I'm the chair of our GME diversity committee. And so trying to work on the orthopedic workforce and being more inclusive of women and underrepresented minorities. Definitely. That's a super important topic to be involved with. Any tips uh, to residents when applying that are specific to that topic? I don't know that there's anything you can do specific to that topic on your application other than, you know, representing who you are, you know, rather than leaving things blank, which is always an option, but go ahead and and filling in everything about yourself. And do you guys get training specific to diversity and inclusion? Yeah, we uh, we have grand rounds uh, built into our curriculum every year on these topics. Okay. And um, Let's get into the residents, um, you know, first couple of years of residency. What advice do you give the residents then? You know, it's so overwhelming to be a resident. What books do you recommend they, they read? What advice do you give them on kind of like handling the first uh, few years? So we have a, a pretty comprehensive curriculum for our residents when, when they onboard. And that was part of why I, you know, what drove me to be a program director is that I wanted to try to make it 
as seamless as possible for people when they come in and, and give them a recipe for success. So we have a comprehensive reading list based on a two-year curriculum that covers all of orthopedics. We have set exams that residents are supposed to take every week to uh, build their knowledge base, and we have mandatory conferences, et cetera. The other thing that we've done that really helps our incoming residents hit the ground running is we do a boot camp every July, not only for our interns, but it really covers the basics of everything for every resident level as they advance. That way they're better at being mid-level residents and senior residents, and I think we hit everything. Um, A couple of intangible things I always tell our, our residents is that no matter what you do, work hard and be honest. Those are the things that you can't learn from a book, and those are the things that can make or break you. So if you're a hard worker and you're honest and just do your best, then the rest of this will come because we're very blessed in orthopedics that we have really, really sharp people who are going into this field. And so as long as your work ethic is good, your honesty is good, you'll pick up the content as you go. That's amazing. That's exactly the same advice we got from Dr. Dyer in Harvard. Bottom line is don't be a liar and don't be lazy, right? (laughs) So uh, no, it's just amazing that a lot of times residents focus on things like, you know, memorizing various classifications and things like that. And they, they must focus on the fact that this is not what's going to get you in trouble. It's actually forgetting to do things that are really important and just not showing up and doing your work. So I agree. I think we all agree on that. Have you ever seen a resident get in trouble? Yeah, I mean, I have. And it's, it's usually... There will be a couple of things. Occasionally, it'll be from cutting corners, and and that's when we can kind of counsel them one-on-one to be sure to ask for help if you need it, not only from your faculty, but especially from your other co-residents, because we truly do treat it as a family environment here. So I think that the main problems I see are when people are getting overwhelmed with work and don't ask for help. So that's usually a sign that they're going to struggle. So we, we certainly try to remind them that this is a team sport, that we all are part of patient care, and we all want them to succeed. You know, beyond that, occasionally you'll have residents who are doing really well, and then something just drastically changes. So those are the ones that you really want to reach out to, especially in this day and age of heightened awareness of burnout and depression and when people can have personal and family things that are affecting their lives. And certainly in in the last five years, I've had situations where we've intervened and and things have perked up and turned back around. Mm -hmm. You mentioned calling for help. How does it work at your institution? So the junior resident goes down to the emergency department and then how does it go up the ranks? Do they call the attending or they speak to the chief or speak to the fellow? It depends on the uh, what year resident it is. We throw our PGY1s into the fire pretty quickly. They're taking level one trauma call, which doesn't happen at a lot of places. So they're usually, their first call will be to a mid-level resident during the day. At nighttime, there's no PGY1s, but during the day. And then to a mid-level, then to this, occasionally to the senior resident or fellow, whoever happens to be available. And then usually the attending is kind of at the uh, top there. And that's not just to avoid the attending getting called, it's because there's different levels of learning and different pearls you can gain from people at at every level. So the more people you talk to, the more little pearls you're going to learn along the way. Yeah, I agree. With respect to calling the attendings, you know, some residents I think are a little bit uncomfortable in the beginning. How do you, how do you enforce this 
feeling of it's okay to call me. You know, when I was a resident, they would say, call me if you need me, but need me if you call me. Is there anything specific that you guys do in your program? No, I mean, nothing specific. We do mention in the uh, July boot camp every year that the old call me if you need me, but calling is a sign of weakness. That's not existent here. We've kind of gotten rid of that. And our residents know that if there's any faculty members that doesn't adhere to that, that they can come to either me or our chairman and we can fix that issue. We make it pretty well known here that our residents are free to uh, call us to discuss patient care issues or anything else for that matter that they need. Mm-hmm. That's great. And what makes a good resident even greater? I think being prepared as much as possible, which probably trauma is the hardest subspecialty in which to do that. But I just love it when I go to the OR, the resident not only knows everything about the case, knows everything about the patient, but they've taken it to the next level. They know every step of the technique guide for the implant we're using. They know what to do if we have to change game plans in the middle of the case. So I think the great residents are really the ones who are very thorough in their preoperative planning. And then the next really highest level beyond that is after the case, they really pull me aside and say, hey, here was my pre-op plan. Here's what we did. Can we just go over why it was really accurate or why we had to change course? So I think the superstars who stand out in my mind are, are those residents. Got it. Yeah, I agree. I always tell the residents, you should never show up to the OR without knowing. At least, first of all, try to meet the patient. But if you getting a chance to meet the patient, then at least you should read the note and know exactly everything about them. So let's talk about some clinical scenarios in the emergency department. Let's talk about some reductions. How do you guys do close reductions in the ED? Is it under conscious sedation? Do they use local anesthetic at times? Um, you know, as an attending, I never go to the ED, right? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> what I what I hear, what I'm told is that yeah. it's a mix of both. That, you know, for ankles and wrists, we do more regional stuff. And then for bigger reductions, more conscious sedation. Got it. What kind of cases do you guys take to the operating room at night? So luckily, we're pretty set with having multiple orthopedic trauma rooms that we can run during the day every day. So it's pretty rare that we operate at night. I hope I don't jinx myself on call tonight. But we take vascular injuries at night, compartment syndrome at night, irreducible dislocations, and then open fractures with severe contamination, like really mud and grass and dirt, or if they were injured in the water and have a bad open injury. Those are the only things we're really taking at night. Got it. With respect to temporizing patients overnight, do you, I guess just the usual protocol, pain control, do you guys use traction uh, often, skeletal traction? We do. I know when I was at, in Nashville before, there was uh, one, of our, one of the residents there wrote a paper basically saying that it didn't make a difference whether you use skeletal traction or bucks, but I wasn't quite a firm believer in that, especially because with fine wire traction, there's not a ton of comorbidity. So we lean pretty heavily on the side of traction for femur fractures in young patients and for acetabular and pelvic ring injuries. For geriatric hips, we do the opposite. We just get them comfortable, place a pillow under the knee. Yeah, I think we do exactly the same in Vermont here. And DVD prophylaxis is often something that they get in trouble with because, you know, they might get a low dose molecular weight heparin and then the next day you find out you can't have a spinal or something like that. Do you guys have any policies on that? We have the opposite policy. They get low molecular weight heparin before they leave the ER. We start it early and operate right through it. 
we don't do a ton of spinals here, but we operate right through Lovenox and start it right away because we actually used to have the opposite problem where people didn't get it. And then for whatever reason, they weren't clear or something else happened. And then lo and behold, you have a patient who's gone a few days without getting any DVT prophylaxis. Mm -hmm. It's interesting to see how different programs do things slightly differently across the country. This message is from OTA sponsor Stryker. Introducing Stryker's new Variax 2 mini fragment plating system. For over two decades, Stryker has been innovating in the plating space, launching a comprehensive range of standard and anatomically contoured plating options for small and large fragment indications. Designed with you in mind, our latest edition, the Variax 2 mini fragment system, has broadened our plating portfolio while also complementing Stryker's full trauma product offering. Learn more at platingthatfits.com. This announcement is intended solely for healthcare professionals. A surgeon must always rely on his or her own professional clinical judgment when deciding to use a particular product when treating a particular patient. Stryker does not dispense medical advice, nor does it endorse or support the unapproved uses of its products. What are your thoughts about classification systems? Do residents need to sit down and memorize all of them? Not at all. I mean, there's the common ones that people know and that actually convey a clear picture on what you're dealing with and then how you're going to treat it. But I tell a lot of our residents to shy away from them, especially when they're calling me to tell me about a case or they're showing me a case. Now, that's different than when we do fracture conference. At that point, when we're actually trying to educate a little more about what the classification means, et cetera, then we'll, we'll get into it. But when we're just taking care of patients, I'd rather hear a good description of, of what they actually see and what they think we need to do. Yeah, I agree. And that's also something that I see commonly used around the country, that although we all know the classifications, we realize that that's one way of presenting a case, but you don't really need to know it. Obviously, you need to know some of the famous ones so you can keep up. Let's talk more about education. So you said you guys have a set curriculum. I know these days a lot of people use OrthoBullets, they use ViewMedi, various online seminars. What are your thoughts about that? Is that the way to go or one should go back to the classic textbook? No, I think that those things are nice adjuncts to a good faculty-led program. So we have basically conferences broken down to Tuesday evening is our core curriculum conference. It's a two-year rotating curriculum based on the Academy's core review book, and we cover every chapter in the book within a two-year period. And it's all 100% faculty-led live lectures, and the residents have read the chapters before conference. So it's not just purely sitting down and being lectured to, but you can actually have a discussion about, hey, these are the top, these are the things that are a little confusing, and you're hearing it directly from a subspecialty fellowship trained faculty member, and I think it's much more educational. The Khan Academy model of just watching the videos and then asking questions is fine, but we just take it to a different level that it's, they read the chapters, and then we do a little bit of didactics and then much more interactive learning. And then our Friday mornings are dedicated to just case presentations and, and grand rounds lectures on, on current topics that may or may not be in the textbooks. Yeah, I agree. Again, case-based discussions seem to be by far the most educational way to go. You know, one of the things that drives me crazy is when residents are unable to obtain a clear neurologic exam and then they'll write something in the chart like, you know, wiggling toes or things like that. And 
And I know that I always try to instill them to, the importance of at least always performing a thorn or vascular exam. And even if you can't, let's say that you can't do it because the patient is uncooperative, you should be very clear with what you are documenting. What do you tell your residents about that? Tell them the exact same thing. Just document appropriately and accurately that if you can't obtain an exam, just document why you can't obtain the exam. If you can obtain a partial exam, then put down whatever you see and find, like as you mentioned, wiggling fingers or toes, but that you couldn't do a more detailed exam due to it being unobtainable at the time. We do do a pretty good job, I think, here because we're a private-demic model. We're both a private practice and academic, and our residents work with several different hospitals in the region, that they get a pretty good education on on the business side of medicine, on documenting appropriately, on learning about billing and coding and medical legal aspects. So I think we, we do a pretty good job of instilling that into our trainees here. When you guys obtain a post-reduction CTs, if you have like a trimalleolar ankle fracture, do you often get a post-reduction CT? I know that the foot and ankle trauma is something you guys are interested in down in Tampa. We do. For a lot of our trimals, we, we get CT scans and it just helps you better plan your fixation because as you know, there's a lot of different variants of the posterior malleolar component of a trimal fracture. Interestingly though, a lot of our patients for pelvic and acetabular trauma, in particular hip dislocations, will get their CT scan with the hip still reduced because they go so quickly, but they don't give our residents a chance always to reduce them. On those patients, I don't typically get a second post-reduction CT scan. You can pretty much garner everything you need to off of even a dislocated scan, in my opinion. Got it. And what about the distal tibia fractures? Yeah, and in particular, the spiral distal third yeah. or posterior malfracture, yes. We're, we're pretty aggressive with getting CTs on those because even with really nice high-def big monitors blowing things up, you can not always appreciate the posterior malleolar fracture. Mm-hmm. I know the one thing that made me always uncomfortable is when patients uh, with pelvic fractures uh, came in unstable, hemodynamically unstable to the ED. What's your algorithm there? So we followed the typical ATLS guidelines and, you know, early binder application, aggressive resuscitation. And then the thing that's thrown a little bit of a wrench into things now is that we have the introduction of Reboa and It's been used inconsistently, I think, in different centers and even within the same center by different attending trauma surgeons. And so we've tried to have attending to attending discussions now on when people are going to use Reboa versus sending patients to the angio suite versus going to the OR. So the advent of Reboa, I think, has created a little bit of confusion in some centers, including ours. Got it. I remember when I was a resident, we used to use X-fixes quite a bit, and it didn't seem that we're doing it as much. I think just like a classic binder and IR seems to do the job. Is that your experience as well? Yeah, I remember as a junior resident, putting X-fixes on in the trauma bay blind with no X-ray, and I can't imagine having one of my trainees do that now. So I think that, (laughs) yeah, yeah, the X-fix in the ED is hopefully a thing of the past. I think with binders and or sheets, that you really don't don't need to be placing X fixes in the emergency department. Now, in the operating room, certainly, if there are various indications for using an X fix on a pelvis, that I still use them. Okay. 
So he said open factories, unless they're severely contaminated, you keep them in the ED overnight. Do your residents do like a preliminary washout, uh, something like that, or? We make them utilize sterile gloves, a little sterile setup with towels. And if there's gross debris, remove it. And then just put sterile saline soap gauze and splint the limb. As far as, you know, I remember when I was resident, we used to mix betadine with saline and make it look almost like iced tea and squirt out the leg. We've gone away from that. Okay. So just that and just the antibiotic setness and pain control and make sure they don't have a compartment syndrome. <laughs> what about compartment syndromes? You know, that's obviously one of the biggest, most stressful uh, things that we can happen to an orthopedic surgeon, especially if it's missed. Do you guys uh, use the striker needle often? I don't think we have any strikers in our hospital. And if we do, I need to find them and get rid of them because I've banned them. Really? Yeah, the there was the paper a few years back that showed that there is extreme inconsistency, even within the same user and then between users on on what you want on what the striker needle will show. For us, it's a clinical diagnosis. We're fairly aggressive with doing fasciotomies when they're clinically indicated. But on an awake and alert patient, it's purely clinical by exam. And then on patients who are obtunded, if they have a high energy injury, and if it's one that we're concerned based on our soft tissue exam, then we're going to do fasciotomies. Okay. Yeah, and I agree again, it's got to be a clinical diagnosis 99% of the time. What about compartment syndrome of the thigh? Do you ever treat those or the foot? The thigh, yes. The foot, no. The foot, if you release them, they get claw toes. If you don't release them, they get claw toes. So the foot, I think there's good literature to support not doing fasciotomies on the foot. The thigh, certainly. I think actually last month we had a, a thigh compartment syndrome, or actually two. We had two different patients really? in a few weeks that were kind of found down sort of situations and had thigh compartment syndromes. In those cases, there's no associated fracture? No, and both of those, there was not. It was people who were um, drug overdose was one of them. The other one was an elderly person who had kind of fallen, and then nobody had found them until the next morning. Got it. Do you use any laboratory values to help you with the decision-making? We end up getting uh, CPK, and they're elevated, but I think that if, if it's on exam, a florid compartment syndrome, which both of these were, the lab wasn't going to really sway me one way or the other. They, had, they were already having poor kidney function, and their muscle markers were high, which, you know, but I don't think that that's what pushed me to the OR. Got it. What are your expectations from a PGY-5 before they leave a residency and go on to fellowship? I know it's a broad question, but... No, that's fine. So yeah. what I tell our residents, especially our fifth years, because you know we meet with them at least every six months, if not a little more often, is that by the time they graduate, I want them to be confident in running an operating room as if they were the attending. So I want them to be confident surgeons and that they're safe with doing any surgical approach and with most um, core procedures in orthopedics and that the reason that they're going to fellowship is to just become really proficient and experts in one field. From the clinic perspective, I want them to be able to run a full clinic on their own as if they were an attending and know how to manage patients. 
from a practical perspective, I want them to know how to run a practice and know how to build and code and and do a lot of these things. I teach them how to um, deal with patients from workers' compensation to deal with other various things that they'll see in their clinics. And then from a general perspective, I want them to feel confident in going and being leaders in their communities, in their hospitals, and then if they want to get involved at, in their societies and you know their medical societies and on the local or national level, that's fine. But I think that they should be leaders in their groups and their practices. That's fantastic. Must be very rewarding again to see them go out and practice, starting as junior residents and then seeing them become so proficient. Do you have any final tips for residents or, you know, advice on what you wish you were told when you were a resident or kind of like uh, words of wisdom? And I think that it's funny because people tell you it flies by and you don't necessarily feel like it when you're a junior resident taking call and in the trenches, but it really does fly by. And so take every opportunity you can to learn, take every opportunity you can to get in the OR, to do clinics And then also take every opportunity you can to, when you're off, to have a lot of fun with your co-residents because they're going to be lifelong friends. Got it. And before people go to fellowship, you have some advice to give them? Sure. So I always tell our residents when they're finishing up and going to fellowship that I really want them to, to hit the ground running. And what that means is that you make your reputation really early in fellowship, being clinically solid and if you prove to the attendings at your fellowship program that you're trustworthy and honest and that you know how to run an operating room, then they will give you a lot of autonomy early on. And then it'll just be a self-fulfilling prophecy and that you'll get better and better and they'll let you do more and more. So I really tell them to hit the ground running. And then that carries on into practice as well in that there you have nobody looking over your shoulder. So while the hospital and people may notice if you're really fast, that's not your goal. Your goal is to be really technically excellent and then speed will come later. So just always strive to do the right thing in the operating room in clinic and then then the rest will, will just come with time. Yeah, that's excellent advice. Well, thank you so much for your insight and knowledge and I'm sure our listeners will really enjoy listening to your experience and advice. Thank you again for joining us and please subscribe to the OTA podcast channel at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast. Thank you again, Dr. Amir, for sharing your wisdom with us and we look forward to talking to you soon. Enjoyed it. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the OTA podcast, a Convey MD production. Make sure you don't miss an episode. Subscribe to the OTA channel wherever you get your podcasts. And to learn more about becoming a member and providing the highest quality orthopedic trauma care, visit the Orthopedic Trauma Association at OTA.org.